All right, and with me right now, Lukman Harris, anchor and journalist at Astro Awani, and also Rajan Moses, former Reuters foreign correspondent and ex-Business Times editor. How are you guys doing this morning? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. So we'll, go, we'll get straight into it. We're talking about 173 sec- child sexual abusers being put behind bars. And uh, this is, if I'm not mistaken, since July 2017 to February this year. Correct. That is. Now, do you feel that this is a turning point for abusers? And or is this is this better enforcement, uh, Rajan? Well, I think it's a it's a very good move in the sense that you know in just a short period of what less about more than two years or so, so many cases have been handled, and it's very commendable that you got you know that this kind of action we have never heard about. It's not loud, it's not uh, big news, but it's effectively quiet. Okay. So I think that's the important point. I, I do agree. It has been very, very, very effective. I think about 800 or so cases mm-hmm. actually brought forth before the special court for the past two years. That's a lot of cases. It's a sad statistic, but it's true. It's it effective. Is, yeah. um, but you also need to look at, it feels like extinguishing a fire at the tip of the fire. It does help, but it does not help the issue to solve the issue from the root cause. So the root cause of you know sexual abuse and even sexual harassment usually is the awareness. People when they're harassed they don't know whether to, uh, to, to complain or to bring it forth to the authorities or not maybe they are ashamed so a lot of these cases are still unreported and I think the government also needs besides establishing this court which has been very effective and is very good they also need to instill the awareness amongst children amongst probably women young women maybe even young boys to actually bring forth uh, put forth complaints and also tell people if this they, they have experienced such abuses only then I think will this um, be tackled at its root cause. So it, let, it lets it lets people know that you know there is an avenue for you to go to if something happens like that yeah. too. Yes. You, you know what I mean. And how effective has the Special Criminal Court on Sexual Crimes Against Children been since its inception? Well, I think the number of cases speak for themselves. Number one, yeah. and number two, there are also fallbacks like you know going into the sessions courts to handle this matter. You know, as we go along the way, you know it can happen, you know, where you can get uh, session scots intervening. And uh, awareness also uh, with judges trying to, you know, be trained to handle these kind of uh, matters. Uh, I think overall my take is that this is a, a good start. It's not the end, it's the good start. And there's plenty more to happen. And uh, I do agree with you, Lokman. Yes, you would need to look at the root causes. And that will happen you know, as we go along the yeah, way. Yeah, because a lot of these cases are hugely, largely unreported. Even not just sexual abuse, but also sexual harassment cases mm. at work. But about 50% of cases brought forth by the court has been tried or convicted. So this is good. This is the first of its kind, the Special Court for Sexual Abuses. This is the first of its kind in Southeast Asia. But what we need to do more of, actually what we need to do moving forward is actually introduce this court for every state, like no, the normal courts. Right now, we only have one in Putrajaya and one in Sarawak, if I'm not mistaken. So for it to be more effective, we need to have one in each state. I believe we are well on the way. All right. Yes, we need to spread our wings when it comes Absolutely, to that. Absolutely. Yes. All right. We'll still be with uh, Lokman Harris and also Rajan Moses after this. Uh, and at, at that time, we'll be talking more on the smoking ban that's been extended uh, with focus on rural areas as well. Hang on for that. at light. It's Sham here sitting in for Shah's at light front page with us still uh, Lukman Harris and also Rajan Moses. Now, the smoking ban, so at first it was a big hoo-ha. Um, it was just an educational period until July, but they have extended that mm. till the end of the year and also with focus on rural areas. Now, guys, why is there a need 
for the extension? I mean, is it fair to say that people learn once it is enforced, uh, Lokman? Look, I don't believe in this, uh, Sharp. I think I recall being on the show, this show a few months back, discussing the need to actually have this grace period. I've never believed in it. If you remember, in 2016, the government introduced a, a law requiring people, all of us, to separate our trash at home. And that time, they actually gave a six-month grace period. The same like this one for us to, you know, uh, increase our awareness, learn, make it a habit. But where is that law now? Is people doing it? Are people doing it? I believe the same will happen here. I mean, it will just fizzle out and people will start smoking again in restaurants before you know it. I, I, I believe the momentum is very, very important. Don't kill it. Yeah, well, you know, I've seen it, Rajin. I mean, I'm, I'm hanging out at my mind. First, uh, you know, people are feeling all this bands and not many people are turning up. But after that, people are starting to come in. But some would abide by the law. They take three meters step mm. out and they would do it. Mm. But some don't. They just light up at the table. You know, I think this is again another half measure, you know, that, that at best, you know. It's very Malaysian. It's a very enforcement kind of thing. <laughs> and really, you know, we got to draw a line here. If you're buying uh, road tax for your car, if it's the law, then make sure you, you enforce it. Likewise, the smoking ban, you know, we, we should uh, follow the same thing. So, uh, let's not have half measures here. And every time we do it, it's a very Malaysian cultural thing. Yeah. The momentum uh, yeah. and the hype around it is very important. A few months back, everyone was talking about it. Had you implemented it then 100%, I think it would be more effective. For great change to happen, we have to go through uh, some pain. It will rip the band-aid off right now instead of slowly doing it right. and the thing will become infected. Do it. The, the great change will only come if you if you really, really buck up and you really go through the pain for us to make, you know... Uh, uh, I uh, agree with you. Yeah, you know, for us to really make this effective. Yeah, so uh, well, well, the general thing is more like, you know, whether you agree or not to the rules, the bans, the laws, yes. as yep. long as the law is there, you just have to abide by it. Yeah. You have to abide yeah. by the rules and regulations. What are they for otherwise? Yeah. All right, but well, okay. On a side note for this, uh, well, what can we do to further increase awareness among the rural areas though? I think smoking, you know, whether you're smoking in rural area or in urban city, you know, it's the same thing, you know. I don't understand why you want to have a different uh, a set of rule or morals or principles for it. It's the same thing, you're taking a drag with a cigarette, you know, and whether you take it in the rural area or you take it in your car, you know, it depends. Yeah. So. No. All habits die hard, right? I mean, awareness, increasing awareness is all good. I'm all for it. But with some selected issues, I think that probably is not the most effective way. I, uh, people might disagree with me. I, I don't mind that. But uh, for a habit as, you know, embedded as smoking, you cannot expect smokers after 20 years to suddenly have the awareness and the moral compass to actually, you know, stop smoking and follow the law. So you, you kind of have to impose it upon them. So you really, really need to, uh, to enforce it as soon as you announce it. There's no point having this grace period and then extending it some more. So it will fizzle out and people will say, oh, eh, takpelah, it's okay. Yeah. And then it will become norm again before you know it. Yeah, well, and then on another point, it's more like, you know, the smoking ban is not just for the safety of smokers, but others as well. Others as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right. Yeah. So after this on the light front page, we're still with uh, Lokman and also Rajan to be talking about the Sandakan by election. Hang on for that at light. 
Like breakfast, you're with Sham this morning. On the light front page with us again is Lokman, anchor and journalist at Astro Awani and Rajan, former Reuters foreign correspondent and ex-Business Times editor. So guys, there is yet another by-election happening soon. Uh, the Sandakan by-election, which is a five-cornered fight. I don't know why a lot of people are getting into this. You know, probably they want to serve the community. But you can tell us, who are the candidates and who are the main contenders here? In, in my books, I think there are only two candidates. and That's uh, Vivian and uh, Linda, right. uh, the PBS and the uh, DAP. I've lost a bit of faith in uh, this independence after looking at the last three right. or four other by-elections. And all you see is them getting 87 votes and 60 votes. And, and I think uh, let's get down to the real crux of the matter. Uh, so here, I think uh, the two candidates that are really out there, visible and can could make a difference are uh, uh, Vivian, the incumbent, uh, in a, within quotes, because it's a father's, uh, late father's seat. Uh, and you look at their track record, you know, they've had quite a good uh, win in the last in the parliamentary, mm. in, in the Sandakan uh, constituency. PBS, opposition party now, you know, and uh, they have the, the, the same uh, config, configuration like the past and AMNO support that will come with them. Uh, and the only extra bit here is that the playground is different. This is not Peninsula Malaysia. This is in East Malaysia, in Sabah. Whole different ball game. I yes, think, and yeah. whether it will be another uh, game. Uh, all due respect to the independence, I think uh, it's a beautiful piece of democracy. They provide the check and balance, however you know small the vote they, they may get, and it keeps the so-called larger candidates you know on on their toes. But yeah, I think it's going to be a two-horse race from from the AP. You've got Vivian Wong, the late uh, the daughter of the late incumbent. MP uh, Datuk Stephen Wong, who was also the health minister of Sabah, uh, and, and Datuk Linda Sen, PBS. Uh, a lot of people probably are not really aware, but PBS is bas- basically backed by five big parties, including BN and MCA, who's throwing their weight behind PBS. Um, Vivian Wong has got that element of, you know, being the daughter of the, the ex-MP, who's very popular, who won by a la- very large margin in, in Sandakan in GE14. But don't strike off uh, Datuk Linda Sen, because she is a very experienced Sabahan politician a two-term MP from neighbouring Batu Sapi constituency. Right. So she's got quite a standing there that coupled with, you know, dissatisfactions, growing dissatisfactions for the government on the federal level. Recently, there's been a poll saying that approval ratings for Tun Dr. Mahathir and the government has been uh, decreasing. So it's probably going to be tighter than than, than you would think. I mean, similarly, a lot of people uh, touted uh, that PH would win, but they eventually lost. So yeah. you never know. Yeah, and uh, of course, you know, uh, getting to know the, uh, the candidate dates is important but but what are the key issues being focused in this by-election here? So I think there are two main issues. Um, you would think that problems like the, the rising cost of living would affect urban areas like KL yeah. but in Sandakan it's really quite bad. That's number one. Okay. Number two, I remember because I was reading the news on Esrawan yesterday, I remember reading one piece of news that our correspondent in Sandakan actually shared. Fishermen in Sandakan, they worry for their safety. I mean again, not too long ago being on the show I think discussing about the safety of the eastern border of Sabah. Pirates coming in, kidnapping Malaysians and tourists. This is still very much a problem in, in, in places like Sandakan and Lahad Datu. I remember reading this piece of news. One fisherman actually say, every day I go to work, I may not come back. Ima- Im- imagine saying that, Sham, yeah. to your kids or no. to your family members. I'm going to work, I may not come back. Yeah. So safety uh, in the border 
and the guarantee that they can do their jobs without fear of being hurt or even being killed right. is one central issue to the people of Sandakan which will help them make the decision on May 11. All right. And um, after this uh, with uh, Lukman and also Rajin, we're going to look into, oh, we've heard of the Silk Road. Now, mm. what on earth is the Belt Road Initiative? We'll look into that on the light front page at light. Ed Sham sitting in for Shaz this morning still uh, on the light front page with Rajin and also Lokman and we're talking about well we've heard about we've heard of the Silk Road now there's a new road uh, it's called the uh, Belt Road Initiative now when I first time saw this, uh, saw this term for mm. the first time I'm going what on earth is this maybe you can shed light on this what is a BRI or Belt Road Initiative uh, Rajin okay I think to make it very simple it, 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 it's twofold one is that you know China connecting the world uh, through the silk route that they used to have from the old days, meaning using the elements of the silk route, uh, and the other being big and small nations joining together to develop uh, China's connections with the whole world uh, and being like the middle kingdom, you know, they used to be in the old days. Right. And so, essentially, it is about China being a dominant trading partner. Not in a negative sense, but that they want to, you know, uh, get things done. I think uh, when we look at the comments made by Dr. Mahathir on this matter, uh, he even mistook this whole BRI, you know, initiative, thinking that, you know, it was a a game by China played, you know, to uh, uh, dominate the whole world, you know, so to speak. Uh, But he says now he's, he understood better why the Chinese, you know, were going ahead heavy on this BRI and the Silk Route and how to connect all this. And look at the cast of characters, you know, mm. who take part in this. From Putin down <laughs> the way, you know, and he's touching many, many kingdoms, many peoples, many uh, relationships along the way. Yeah, it's kind of like painting a different kind of scenario yeah, yeah. that we've never seen before. So though. basically, the ancient Silk Road from thousands of years ago do it does touch on many kingdoms, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, all those countries, including Malaysia, because there's, there's basically two routes: this, the sea route and and the land route. Um, and China wants to bring development across all this country you know from A to Z uh, in terms of this road but the fear obviously is that this is a new form of uh, colonialism you can't take over the country so when you want to build for example infrastructure across these countries including Malaysia when you want to build all these airports and bridges and huge ports you, you of course need a lot of money and not all countries have money including Malaysia our funds are very limited yeah. so China will then come and say hey we have the money you can borrow from us right. so they kind of have you you know like that I mean you're indebted to them literally so this has happened in countries like Sri Lanka where they uh, they, they are indebted to China and they can't pay back so in the agreement all these key infrastructures the ports and everything now because Sri Lanka can't pay China back for the cost of building this it is now owned by China so okay. this is obviously the fear the BRI is very good but we have to make sure that we are not too indebted to China uh, to the point that you can probably own key infrastructures uh, in our country so I, I think in that sense we've got uh, you know uh, a golden chance to gain acceptance of this whole matter you do need China that's undeniable you do need China to hedge to to develop your country but what Dr. Mahathir and the new government has been doing is I think quite good because basically you want to work with China but you have to work on fair terms 
you have to re- negotiate or renegotiate agreements and contracts um, and, and uh, ensure that you can actually afford them. So development does not come at a price 20 or 30 years from now where they basically own our ports and our airports and everything else. So let's do our best with it and hopefully something comes out to our benefit as well. And uh, after this, we are also going to get into hiring ex-convicts um, with Rajan and also Lukman. Hang on for that at Light. Alright, with me Sham this morning and doing the light front page with Raja Moses and also Lukman Harris. Now, the uh, Human Resource Minister has asked business owners, employers to hire ex-convicts. More to help out in the unemployment rate at 3.3% but uh, earlier this morning also we spoke to some people who have raised some concerns about hiring ex-convicts. Would they do it? Would they not do it? Some would, some have their concerns. Now, are ex-convicts leaving prison reformed or are they going back in to crime and do we know the percentage look man we we don't have any statistics to accurately measure how many people we have reformed in fact even if we do how do you measure that i mean uh, an ex-convict to say whether he or she has been successfully reformed well to say this accurately you basically have to get into the minds of these people you never know for sure but what i can say is that i have nothing against hiring ex-convicts life is all about second chances I would not be here had it not been for the second or even third chances that I've gotten in my life. A lot of the successful people around the world today would have not been as successful as they are today or well-known as they are today had it not been for second or third chances. We make mistakes. Everyone does. Whether it's, it's the kind of mistakes that people make which are different. But everyone deserves a second chance. All right. And Rajan? I think the minister has sugar-coated it very well here. He says linking ex-convicts versus labor empl- employment, employment rate, rate yeah. which I think is you know, a bit far-fetched here. I mean, in, if you look at the numbers, yes, convicts are a segment of society, you know, but they're not so large enough to influence the rate of uh, unemployment. Uh, unemployment here. But the way convicts are treated has been not very good in the past. All you see is these guys you know, who are doing uh, their cobblers you know most of the time or they're you know involved in restaurants or they're doing a security job mm. so uh, you know the the, the uh, convicts are really shunned and in limbo uh, generally speaking. And I think uh, bringing joy to these people and getting them to, you know, participate in, uh, come back into society and uh, do something, show something for themselves uh, is something that will be commendable to, to be seen. So, you know, it's a bit far off from uh, sorting out our unemployment rate, but it's all—it's also talking about giving second chances, like you said. Mm. Uh, the moral uh, issue here. Yeah, and you, you already said, you know, some of these ex-convicts are working as cobblers and you see them here and there. Is that like a sign that not much support given to ex-convicts? Is there enough support? It seems to me, you know, that... Uh, have you heard much about them, Lokman? I mean, I haven't heard much about yeah. them as a... Yeah, I've not heard much about them, but... a segment of society. Yeah, but um, the fact that I've not heard much about them, I think does not put, put me in a good place to accurately judge whether yeah. enough has been done or not enough has been done. But I think things like this is, uh, are good because the minister has actually said that, you know, we want to hire ex-convicts. I think that is really, really good. Integrate them back, reintegrate them into society. Uh, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, the principle is behind it is very noble and uh, is necessary. Practical as well. We've got more people yeah. working for our economy. Okay. Absolutely. Also, if, if we were to hire ex-convicts, what about screening? Is screening ex-convicts enough? What kind of screening would we do? Or is it just a normal job interview? You know what I mean? Is there any types of screening that's needed for ex-convicts you think? Obviously it can't be the run-of-the-mill run of uh, job interview it depends on, on the offence committed if it's you know sexual offences obviously you need to have some sort of a registry I, I do agree with that mm-hmm. and we do have a sexual offenders registry I think for the past it's quite new since April 
for sexual related offenses we we need that but by law you are actually not required to disclose any past non sexual offenses you've committed unless required by the company screening is needed especially for sexual offenses and other offenses as well but i do not think that that should be a big factor taken into consideration of hiring definitely thank you so much lokman and also rajesh thank you today and